0: You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network.
1: Hi, my name is Ron Friends, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is Amazing Spider-Man, episode number 15. I am your host, Curtis Finley.
2: I am your Spider-Man host, Adam Chapman.
0: And we are back again to talk about another great collection of Amazing Spider-Man. This one comes from the 80s, um, 1984 to 1986 in particular. It's called Ghosts of the Past. And Adam, can you tell us what we can find in this volume?
2: This is a lot of good stuff. I mean, this is uh, really where the DeFalco and Friends collaboration really starts to, uh, to really gel. I mean, they'd already been together since issue, what, 252, 253? Something like that, yeah. This is really, really started to kind of lay down certain aspects of the run. However, this is where we first start to get the inkling that they're maybe not the greatest with deadlines at this time because we have a bunch of weird fill-ins as well. Um, We're also seeing Spider-Man kind of post-alien costume and uh, although there is one alien costume like real appearance here where he actually fights it off. We got a a bunch of good stories against um, but Silver Sables in here, some Black Fox because they they love using black fox and i don't think anyone handles black fox correctly like friends and defaco uh Michelini tries to use him later with uh eric larson and it never quite drives j- uh, the same way we just and we also have uh the very famous uh issue with the the commuter uh which is a famous peter david issue but big the biggest thing that people will remember from this run or one of the more infamous things is that spider-man uh beats up fire lord and that's very much a a divisive thing in this run um obviously it's on the cover of this collection uh in terms of what kind of you need to know going in um spider-man has recently dealt with the alien costume it's now been uh removed and it's currently with the fantastic four uh the big kind of big status quo shaking thing that had just happened was both that and in issue 257 uh mary jane revealed to peter that she knows he's spider-man and uh almost really bad timing black cat shows up and kind of confirms this in case she wasn't sure although they've kind of retconned that she absolutely knew but here it's almost like she pretty much knew but wasn't for sure um and that's really all you kind of need to know uh, besides the fact that um i think in issue 252 or thereabouts uh peter parker dropped out of grad school and him and ma haven't talked since so they're not talking to each other that's a big thing Um, so he's kind of isolated. Mary Jane's back in his life and now knows his identity, uh, and he's kind of freaked out about this, and he just dealt with the alien costume. Thankfully, that's been removed, and he's still kind of dating the black cat, although that kind of is dealt with in another book, in and around these issues.
0: I'd also include that uh, Harry's kind of recovering from his drug problems that he's had recently. He had a little stint as the Green Goblin, and um, after that... Uh, has has gone into rehab and is kind of trying to get his life back together, trying to be the head of Oscorp and he 's married to Liz and they are expecting a child
2: absolutely it's actually interesting seeing uh Harry in this book because he 's very much got his life together like this isn't the Harry from you know the one thirties or even the one seventies this is a Harry who is putting things back together he 's the head of a company. This is a Harry that maybe we 're not even used to seeing and uh for those who kind of know what happens to harry eventually it's a little weird to even see it
0: yeah that's for sure. Well, uh, what are you? What are your thoughts on this, on this epic collection in general? The the presentation, the package.
2: Ah, uh, you know what? I, I I come on two different sides. So on the one hand, I think there's some great material in here. I'm really glad with uh, how they put it together. It looks and the great. Um, it's a classic run. I mean, I love the and friends. The only thing that kind of throws me off is that I think that they should have led off the volume with the angle. There's a annual from what number six 18 in here yeah and i think that they should have started the volume with that because they start with a great issue don't get me wrong um it's the big mary jane origin issue uh the problem with it is that the end of the issue really amps you up for the next issue like it's it's exciting peter parker's got the, the, the red and blues back on he's ready to go take on the hobgoblin and then we're totally taken out of that and go to do something completely different and it's those types of things that kind of drive me crazy. They had to put it in 1984. It was published in 84, but they could have put it before this issue. Um, yeah. That, that really stuck out to me as like a sore thumb because it's, it's such a great issue. And again, it has so much momentum at the end. And then they totally squander it.
0: Well, I think, though, for continuity's sake, though, didn't it have to come right here?
2: i don't think so it 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 has to take place after the alien caution it has to take place um there's one other thing that had just happened but i don't think it actually necessarily it takes place after 259
0: but um isn't there and i i can't remember if this is true or not but i thought that there was a reference to mary jane knowing peter parker's spider-man in here
2: which is okay because she already found out in two fifty seven, so it's not uh, it's not like you're ruining that surprise. And they didn't deal with it right away because then he went on and, and oh. dealt with the costume.
0: Ah, I see. Yeah, yeah, that's right.
2: So and then there's an and, and you couldn't put two fifty eight here because two fifty eight is a great ending point for a collection because that's when they remove the costume from them. So it makes complete right. sense. Do start a volume with, with 259. My only problem is that if you're going to have to put in annual 18, which you have to somewhere if it's in if it's 1984, I feel like if you were going to put in this volume, put it at the beginning so it doesn't kind of ruin that flow for what you actually get to read in this collection.
0: Right. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Um
2: because it's really done in one like it's a great annual it's you know it actually does change some of the characters because it it definitely pushes jameson in a different direction it gets him married it's exciting in that way and it actually to be honest given the time period is one of the better uh, scorpion appearances you're going to find because he's actually a formidable threat which half the time he isn't
0: okay well let's save the rest of the talk about the annual to when we get to that issue but um, yeah that no that's a good point um that uh if they could just maybe just swap the the two spots that's what you're saying though just Uh, yeah flip those two issues there
2: yeah it would fix the pacing of the overall collection
0: yeah 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 well i think that it doesn't really matter because there are so many halts to the flow of this book with with the with all of the extra issues or the the fill-in issues and everything so i mean that's just kind of another one of those instances
2: (laughs) i guess it just only it only bugs me more because it it wasn't necessarily designed that way whereas unfortunately the fill-ins were just a product of the time yeah and they are what they are but they 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 can't decide to move the fill-ins because sequential ordering people would go crazy um whereas with an annual you can kind of play with its placement and i just felt they could have made a better decision yeah that's all
0: okay fair enough I, I thought this volume was quite well put together and well thought out. Um, you know, now that I'm thinking about the annual, then maybe that's something that could have been dealt with differently. But um, but other than that, I I like I like this volume quite a bit. The restoration on all of the the issues are is excellent. Mm-hmm. And the bonuses at the back, there are only a few. There's it doesn't have a whole lot of bonuses, but um, they're pretty good. They got some some covers from Marvel Tales which reprinted. Um, issues from this collection uh, with Ron Lim on the art, and then um, an article about the introduction for of Web of Spider-Man, which I thought was a little odd, except for the fact that Web of Spider-Man number one is in this issue. Uh, mm-hmm. But I w- if they were ever to make a Web of Spider-Man Epic Collection, I'd hope to see that there.
2: I don't think we're ever gonna get that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: well, one could hope. Um, sure. And then we have a bunch of um, a bunch of art original scans of original art um, but other than that yeah I think it's, uh, it's quite good I, I was um, one of the pet peeves I have with the epic collections and this really isn't a huge deal at all it's just my hang up is that the cover doesn't reflect the title of the book mm. so the book is called Ghosts of the Past but we have an issue with Spider-Man beating a Fire Lord and that doesn't relate at all um, no. so you get that disconnect but that's just a minor thing Let's move on to our listener comments. We have uh, something from James. He left us a comment on Facebook, and he says photo covers are extremely uncommon for Marvel, especially in this time frame. Any insight into the one collected here? Sorry, I forgot the issue number. Uh, well, I can tell you the issue number is Amazing Spider-Man number 262, and that is a standout cover in this collection. That's for sure. And it's, a, it's kind of a cool concept. And it ties, with, ties in with the story that's inside as well. Um, do you remember any of the other photo covers that came out around this time, Adam?
2: You know, honestly, I can't remember. I remember that there is a story about 262, but for the life of me now, I can't remember. And I didn't think so. But there is a story as to why they went with this.
0: I remember I collected Fantastic Four. I, I have most of the issues up to like 450 or something like that. And uh, there was one, the Dr. Doom cover, where it's Dr. Doom's mask with some light shining out of it. And it oh, was, yeah. that was done. That was a photo cover as well. Um, and then there were a bunch of mo- there a bunch more of them. There was, a, there was a Spider-Man team-up cover and a Spider-Woman cover and a Punisher cover and stuff. They're all done by the same guy. Um, oh. And the photographer, his name is Elliot R. Brown. Mm. And originally he was... He was asked by Danny Fingeroth to do um some photo covers, a recreation of Submariner number seven. Oh yeah. And uh a new a new photo background for Tales of Astonish number seven. That's the 1980 series Tales to Astonish. And uh they they proved to be really popular and I think Jim Shooter really l- latched on to it, so he asked them to do a bunch more. And here in the book comic book fever a celebration of comics 1976 to 1986 is a little commentary by brown about amazing spider-man 262 so i'm going to read that here for you so you can hear what he has to say he says amazing spider-man 262 was a standout for me because that's me i'm the photographer catching peter parker in his spidey talks <laughs> um I could not say who thought this up, but the fellow portraying Peter, Scott, whose last name escapes me right now, was an in store Spider Man hired by the marketing department to appear at comic shops and supermarkets around the country as Spider Man. He bore a remarkable resemblance to the traditional Remita Sr. Peter Parker, so he was around the office, and best yet, he had his own Spider Man costume. <laughs> The idea was to have him in a broom closet caught by some snapping news hound photographer right in the act of becoming Spider-Man. Now, how to do that? I needed a closet and a doorway. We were at 387 Park, and the nasty old interior room that was used for the reprint roll storage was perfect. Out of the way and quiet. I believe Scott and I shot on the weekend. The technical challenge was to have my flash go off at the same time as they were as the taking flash that lit up Scott. This way my flash would blind the camera and obscure the fact that it was me. Uh, The other technical challenge was to have a camera, a quote-unquote camera in my hands. I only had one camera so I'm holding a Scotch tape dispenser and once you (coughs) know that, you can see it. There's also a big old wire hanging down. The wire is connected to the camera as, uh, as was the The taking flash. I could only afford the 12-foot synchronization cord and had to hang it down in front of me. I hoped that it would be lost in the glare, but it wasn't. But no one has written in to complain yet. So there you go. There's a story about this cover. (laughs) Wow. Yep.
2: It's actually a really... Considering the time period, considering that there wasn't a lot of Spider-Man merchandise like we're used to these days, it's actually a pretty good-looking costume.
0: This was actually after Spider-Man had his own live-action TV show as well. Um, mm. But this was before the day that you could find people dressing up as Spider-Man all the time. So to have a photo cover, because I like you do, I think Marvel puts out variant covers of cosplay people now. Yeah. But this was way before that, so it would have really stood out when people saw it in the comic book shops. I think even more than the other photo covers, I've seen the other ones, and this one is by far the best one of the lot.
2: Absolutely. Well, and as you, as you kind of read out there, I mean, there was a lot of thought going into the composition as well, which is interesting.
0: Yeah. Okay. Moving on here. We have, um, I asked a question on Twitter and the question was Tom DeFalco and Ron friends created many villains found in this Epic collection, ghost of the past. Who is your favorite? And I gave the options of Puma, silver sable, black Fox and slide. Well not surprisingly <laughs> Slide got 0% of the votes
2: <laughs> Not it was
0: wrong not, uh, not technically created by Ron Friends Sal Busema did that issue no, okay. But uh, Silver Sable got 17% Black yeah. Fox got 33% And Puma right. got 50%
2: I'm surprised that Silver Sable didn't do As well as Black Fox I mean I love Black Fox don't get me wrong I'm just surprised
0: <laughs> Yeah I'm surprised too actually uh, who's at the top of your list
2: uh it was puma i'm pretty sure i voted on that poll
0: nice yeah i would have to say him too he's definitely the the most interesting character out of all of them although silver Sable's a close second he's got a kind of a unique a unique yeah. take on a on villain there
2: in some ways i don't know if it's even fair because it's clear that tom defaco and ron friends just love the puma
0: that's <laughs> true
2: their affection for the character is a big reason why people connect uh' mm-hmm. because they obviously love using that character and really had a lot going on there, so of course you're gonna love that character, yep. um whereas a character like Slide, who shows up once, you know there's not maybe not a lot of affection there,
0: <laughs> yeah, well, and uh no one has really used him throughout the years as well. He pops up now and then, and I think he died during the civil war storyline, <laughs> so <laughs> there you go.
2: Sounds about right. Yep.
0: So we're going to move on to the issues now. We start with issue number 259. It's called All My Pasts Remembered. And in this issue, we get a Mary Jane origin story. This is uh, the first time we've heard this. Uh, Mary Jane's kind of been a, um, a mystery character in terms of her past but uh in this one she she confronts Peter about him being Spider Man and feels like if she like that, that she needs to share something um that kind of uh that hasn't been shared with anybody as well. So she goes into this story. Um and it's yeah, it's it's a it's a moving story that I think people have touched on um since then, uh with a with a dad that's that hasn't been the best and she's kind of bounced around from house to house and um eventually ends up with Anna, her aunt Anna. We also see a little bit of her niece that comes up in uh, later on in the 80s. This was a pretty good issue. I liked the fact that we started with this issue. It was just kind of a low-key, uh, we didn't need any big superhero battles or anything like that. It was just a, although we certainly did get a little bit of supervillain action, but it was just a nice, kind of a nice start. What did you think about this one?
2: I, I think this issue is fantastic, and what I think is interesting about it is that if you consider how long Mary Jane had been around, And now suddenly we have like the secret origin. It makes perfect sense, but also doesn't feel like this isn't the character we know, which is a skill that DeFalco has that you could take a character that everyone thinks they already know and doesn't think they're ever they're missing anything about these characters. And suddenly we get a whole new element to their backstory, which makes sense and also just develops the character in a way that she never had. Proper, you know, development before. I think it's great. It, it obviously makes a huge difference in canon, and you know, if this is the Mary Jane issue, and this is where everything we know about Mary Jane really comes from, it's enormously important and just good comic.
0: Yeah, and um, it, it, there's kind of a funny origin surrounding this issue, uh, which uh, Tom DeFalco told me the other day. So I'm going to put in that clip here.
1: Well, Tom, Tom can't take any credit for Mary Jane knowing. Uh, uh, Pete's identity, because he the way he tells it, it's this metaphysical writer thing, <laughs> where the <laughs> characters just start talking to you, and suddenly I realized that Mary Jane knew. So you know he gets no credit for that. Oh, okay. <laughs> he talked himself out of any credit at all for uh, for a wonderful moment in Spider-Man history, because apparently it was uh, it was a it was a fictional character that came up with the idea. Go ahead, Tom. Defend
0: your life.
3: Yeah. What do you have to say about that? Uh, well, Tom? I, I, I wish no. Ron is Ron is one hundred percent correct. I I can't take any credit for it. I wish I could. Um, we had act. We had worked out the that particular plot, um, and we had a different ending in mind, and we knew where the next couple of issues were going to go, and um, you know uh, the the plot was approved, and I'm you know was sitting there typing it and I got to that scene and what was supposed to happen was Peter was supposed to give Mary Jane some sort of story and she was supposed to kind of buy it and and whatever happened. I, I don't remember. But as he starts to give this story, I, you know, I, you know, ended up typing Mary, you know, Mary Jane turns to Peter and says, you know, enough of the bullshit. I know, I've always known. And I, you know, I looked at that and thought, where the hell did that come from?
1: Well, the one thing we really agreed on is that it was a terrific opportunity b- beyond getting them involved romantically again. It was a fantastic uh, uh, opportunity to explore Mary Jane as a character, mm-hmm. which is, as you can see, in what, what, what was it, 259 or something, which is exactly what we, 258, 259, whatever it was, is exactly what we did. We used it initially as... Uh, uh, an opportunity for the two characters, even though they had been romantically involved, you know, for for a period of time and everything, this was their moment to really come clean with each other, right? Uh, and Mary Jane decides to come clean completely with Peter about her past, things that she had never talked about before. And the entire time, Pete is thinking, "This woman just bared her soul to me. Do I really want to c- try to come up with something?" To obfuscate what she has figured out, you know, do I do I really want to do that to her when she is reaching out as a really truly a, as a friend? And of course, by the end of that issue, he, he decides uh, very subtly, I thought, not to deny it anymore, and to uh, and and we certainly intended for that to take the relationship in a in a new direction, a more honest direction. We didn't at the time expect it to take them. To marriage <laughs> I mean, we we actually initially were not planning on getting them uh, re-involved romantically uh, certainly not uh, initially uh, they were going to be best friends she was he was finally going to have a confidant but it being Mary Jane and you know her having revealed the things that she revealed about herself and her attitudes and her lifestyle you know the only thing lonelier than having nobody know is having the person who knows not really want to know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, uh, and, and we saw a lot of story potential there for Pete. We saw a lot of angst there, potential angst there for Pete.
0: Yeah, so there's just a few things in this issue I wanted to mention. One is that uh, we see the She-Hulk in this issue because at this time, um, as a result of the Secret Wars, which that's where Spider-Man got his, his black suit, the Thing also decided to leave the Fantastic Four and stay in Battle World um, at that time so FF were looking for a replacement member and She-Hulk was the one.
2: Mm-hmm. I, I, it's interesting. I, I think this was one of the, not the first Spider-Man comic I ever read by any means but I remember I had the Marvel Tales reprint of which the cover for that is at the end of this collection which I like that's included and I, uh, for some reason, I always am very fond for any Spider Man issues, and I don't know why, where he has a sequence in Central Park with him talking with someone. I don't know why, but it's. Like...
0: <laughs> wow. And, uh, do those pop up quite frequently?
2: I feel like they've happened on more than one occasion, because, but I, I specifically, obviously, remember this one from a nostalgic perspective, but right. something about it just, I, I just enjoy. And, uh,. It just feels very natural. The one thing I did thought was weird, though. But from a monthly comic perspective, you wouldn't notice the difference. Is that at the beginning, as you said before, that you know, we have Peter kind of wondering, should I, should I try to come up with like an, an alternate excuse for this? It's already pretty clear that he can't. I mean, when he first told her, Black Cat, then came in the room right afterwards, and she was like, "It's true, it's true." How do you back away from that? <laughs> Yeah. If you're reading just comics, you know, every once every month, and this was two months later, comic, you know, they don't know who's reading, if they're reading every issue, if they're able to get their hands in every issue. So, I mean, it's only when you read like a bunch of them all at once when you're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. But from a monthly, you know, periodical perspective, it does make a little bit more sense. It's just one of those things where we weren't really ever meant to read them this way all at once. We were kind of meant to read them every month.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah, and that really drives home later on when in every single issue Peter has to tell us that he got a he has a black suit that was made by Black Cat. It's like you don't need to tell us that he's thinking that to himself <laughs> <laughs> all the time.
2: No, this was you know, this was a great issue, and what was really for me special about this is that you know Ron Friends was really excited to draw Spider-Man, and then when he gets to draw Spider-Man, he gets to draw Black Suit Spider-Man, which is not the Spider-Man he anticipated drawing. Yeah. So finally, so what I liked about this is that. He know we. I mean, if you know anything about Ron Friends, you know how much he loves Spider Man, and so I like knowing that it really puts the last page, three pages of this uh, book, in uh, in a bit of a different light. It's it almost feels like um, the talk was like, I know you really want to draw this, Ron. So I'm going to give you three issues to slowly sh- – uh, three pages, I should say – to slowly have him getting the, the, the red costume on and then this great panel with him ready to go fight the Hobgoblin. It's a great sense of pacing, but it also just felt like a love letter to Ron saying, here you go, you finally get the draw of red suit Spider-Man. For real, not just in your in a mindscape having a battle, but finally Peter's in the costume.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and he speaks a little bit a bit about that in the interview as well, but I'm going to save that clip for whenever we get around to recording volume 14. Um so yeah, but uh you can hear it if you uh head over to our Patreon site or wait for that interview to be released to the general public.
2: Although I do have one one comment which I never I honestly don't even think I noticed until this exact moment. The last page of this issue, which is a great, you know, sequence of Spider-Man's running to, to go fight uh, the Hobgoblin. I didn't realize he's in his bathroom and there's a sink right underneath him. Yeah,
0: <laughs> Well cuz yeah he's uh that's where he's changing I guess so he's going up to his his bathroom skylight cuz that's how he escapes his apartment
2: which is again a dynamic but just because of the way it's like such a tight shot on Spider-Man kind of running you almost don't forget that he's on the wall.
0: Yeah. Well I think the um the projected hobgoblin in the background doesn't help for the uh the the perspective. No, not at
2: all. Yeah, exactly. It's it's kind of a I I honestly don't even think I noticed that till this exact moment. <laughs> nice. Oh boy. Amazing Spider-Man Annual. The Scorpion Takes a Bride, uh, but not the way you think. That's the full title. The Scorpion Takes a Bride, but not the way you think. Uh, It's written by Tom DeFalco. What I thought was interesting is that the breakdowns are by Friends, but you actually have finishes by Bob Layden and Jackson Geist, and it definitely gives the art a very different feel to it. You'll find
0: Um, um, that's actually a pretty common thing for Friends is to just do the breakdowns. I mean, he's credited a bunch of different ways in this one, and even when it says pencils, he he pretty much... um, did fairly loose layouts and let the inker uh, take a hold of it. And I was talking to Joe team the other day um, about that and he said that that's kind of something that Friends did a lot. What are your thoughts on uh, when you were inking Ron Friends in- on Spider-Man?
4: Yeah, I, I mean, I enjoyed it. After, I think, the first four issues, speaking of layouts, that's what Ron went to. But Lon, Ron's layouts were also very tight and to the point and I, I saw lots of potential to, alter, to add to it, but it's, it was great just the way it was. Um, and yeah, I was very happy to be on a good old classic comic book like Spider-Man, and then I think while that work was, was good, when we both went over to Superman, I think Ron was even better, and I stepped up to the occasion. So uh, uh, interestingly enough, one day in the mail, I get this cover to ink of Ron's for Superman, and it's just a guy standing there with an all-black background, and he got sort of a weird lightning bolt thing on his chest, and I inked it, and it took about an hour, and I felt a little guilty. I went, oh, you know, I better put more work into this. I get another 15 minutes, <laughs> and then I finished, and I mailed it back that day, and I didn't know that it was the new Superman costume, and it would be the single most uh,
2: publicized piece of art I will ever do in my entire life. <laughs> oh wow. Hmm. <laughs> Well, first of all, this is a good issue. It's, uh, you know, Spider-Man basically ends up fighting the Scorpion, and Scorpion's trying to uh, get his revenge on J. Jonah Jameson, who's about to get married to Marla Madison. That's the basic overview, and that's what we get. However, what I thought was I don't, very frustrating for me reading this issue, and I don't know if I'd ever really noticed it before, maybe I didn't read closely enough, is that it's in um, uh, first-person narration. Yep. And it, I, it just feels, it doesn't feel right because why is, why is this issue in first person narration? It's not like we have a different writer. It's Defalco who we're used to getting. So what? Or actually, actually, I'm wrong. Sorry. This is scripted by Stan. Does that,
0: so, does that make a difference?
2: <laughs> um, well, it, yes, it does. Only because if it had been Tom suddenly changing to right. a different narration in the middle of his ongoing run, that would have felt like a weirder choice um the fact that stan decides to go first person a little strange but doesn't bother me in the same way but from a reading perspective it's just so jarring because we're not used to kind of getting the first person narration from peter we get thought bubbles that's what they're for it's a little bit weirder to have him narrating the book
0: right and even when when stan was doing spider-man uh that that kind of thing never happened i think um i don't know how much he even scripted those issues or how much was steve ditko um but uh yeah it is interesting and it is it's different because you do get a different feel like the the type of narration that he does comes from a different era you get you get captions in pretty much every panel um mm-hmm. and that's something that happened in the 60s but didn't happen as much in the 80s um i i really liked the narration stanley i think did a, a really good job because it gave it kind of this noir feel uh, like mm. it's like a detective kind of story, um, which a lot of it was in that in a sense um, but just the the way that Peter was talking, the way he narrated this whole this whole issue gave it this great noir feel that i I actually really liked
2: i mean i first of all, I like that. You know, Scorpion got his his fair shake. Like, again, I think he's a character who... It's interesting, we have Venom as kind of the anti-Spider-Man. Well, really, that's what Scorpion always should have been. And kind of was once or twice, and then was kind of made a joke. But here, it felt like he was given an actual threat. And I, I... as a as a fan of the Scorpion and of Matt Gargan, I really like that. Uh, you know, he he was a credible threat. He got an annual, not just a regular, you know, twenty two page issue, but he got a full annual to be a, a legitimate threat, and it made sense for the character, and it made sense that why he was able to hold himself as well as he did.
0: Yeah, I thought that his uh, the whole way he broke out of prison was actually pretty good. Um, yeah, he he's kind of played off as a joke these days but uh yeah he's very formidable in this one. Um and I just love the history between him and Jameson. It's mm. a, it's such a great uh it's such a great story. And it not only does it add to this add to uh, Scorpion's character, but it also adds to Jameson cuz we find out a lot about um how much he loves uh what's her name? Marla. Marla?
2: Yeah, Marla Madison.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he he absolutely loves her and will do anything for her. And he's not the he's not the self-centered kind of grumpy, hard-headed news reporter that that we know. It, it's really a step forward for him, I think, in this issue.
2: Well, and I like his relationship with his son, and obviously his son was in a very different place when we start this issue. Which, to be honest, I completely forgotten he was ever kind of like this because we we think of jo- of John Jameson in a certain light, especially for fans of you know Captain America books in the 80s. He was part of Cap's squad. He was his you know his uh, his pilot. Like, and then in the 90s he worked for Ravencroft as the head of security. Like, we have a very clear set. Uh, if you grew up in that period, you know a certain version of John Jameson, and this is definitely a different thing. But we see him starting to you know they kind of starting to repair him so that he can become that man later on
0: yeah yeah totally let's move on to issue number 260 it's called challenge of the hobgoblin and this is kind of where the first big story arc in this issue uh, in this book takes place basically hobgoblin goes after harry that's the gist of of this issue um because he's after osborne's journals and osborne norman osborne's journals i should say that will give him the secrets so some more goblin secrets and he thinks harry has them so he goes after harry the other the kind of the B story here also which later ties in a great deal is that mary jane and liz get uh, kidnapped by the rose and the rose is uh is working with hobgoblin they have it this is an interesting character the rose um i'm not sure when he came around, it was pretty close to, bo- to this, um, this issue, what, this book, wasn't it? Do you know when the rose yeah. first appeared?
2: Uh, I can't remember the exact issue now, but I, he it was a he was a relative newcomer on the scene. And what's interesting about this is that this is this is the first appearance of the Hobgoblin, when not written by Roger Stern, right? Um, and that's yeah. extremely significant because we see a shift in the character because. Um, the version of Hobgoblin we see under Tom DeFalco and my friends is we see him being like kind of this almost like a budding crime boss now working with someone else. So instead of just being this lone wolf that we'd kind of seen him previously, now he's working with the Rose, and that's kind of an, an ongoing thread throughout these, th- these issues. Um, and it really signals a change in, a slight change in how Hobgoblin is written. Uh, he changes a little bit as a force, and uh, as we'll see later on, like, the, the Falco friend's take on the character is markedly different than the original. I'm not saying it's bad. I think it's a great character either way. Um, but it is, if, if, if you're familiar with the Roger Stern version, he definitely starts to feel a little different because, you know, it's, it's a different writer now. It's it's a natural thing. And I like the, some of the directions that they go in with the character.
0: When Roger Stern went off of this book, Tom talked to Roger and found out what uh like who the secret identity of the hobgoblin is and decided that he didn't want to do it that way um, and so changed the story before because Roger didn't finish it, so he got to finish it his own way um, and in Ooh. fact, he didn't even get to finish it his own way he's off the book before <laughs> they made the reveal um, that's right but um but yeah, I think this uh the change in personality and stuff is a is a very distinct and purposeful change. Um, because of the direction that they were intending to go with this character once the once the reveal happened, mm-hmm. uh, do we know the Rose's secret identity at this point, or is that still a mystery as well?
2: Uh, that's I'm pretty sure that's a complete mystery at this point.
0: Okay, so we have two mysterious characters that we don't that nobody knows about uh, in this one book. So that's a it's a big mystery, and we don't find out the answer to either of those questions in this volume. We we'll have to wait for no. another volume.
2: Yeah, no, yeah, we don't find out at all, and it's kind of interesting if you look at it that you know we have the the Hobgoblin mystery and now we have the Rose mystery, which is kind of if you remember you know kind of the early days of Spider Man we had at the same time the Crime Master mystery and we had the mystery of who the Green Goblin was.
0: Right. Uh, yeah.
2: Was kind of a, a nice little kind of throwback to you know these two different masked uh, villains at the same time That's who true. are who are trying to be criminal underworld, uh, underworld uh, guys. So
0: yeah, I'd never thought about that. That's an interesting parallel for sure cool
2: and uh, i i gotta say i i absolutely love friends's hobgoblin like the way that he does um the shadows under the cowl so we just see the eyes uh it's a very distinct thing that he does throughout and it's just it i mean i i like seeing the mask as well but when you just see that silhouette just with the eyes peering out from the darkness it's extremely affecting and it's uh part of what makes his hobgoblin so distinctive
0: definitely yeah and i think that's um something that artists from here on out really grasp
2: a hold of absolutely and yeah this is i mean this is this is big stuff i mean um again we have we have characters being abducted mj and, and uh, liz and uh again i the reason why i hate to go back to this but the reason why the annual again stands out as being oddly placed is that it's really a trilogy of issues it's three issues that tell the story of the hobgoblins back the and the ducks, uh, ducks, uh, Liz and MJ and is trying to get something from, uh, from Harry. And then the next issue is, you know, them trying, uh, Peter trying to rescue them. So it's a nice trilogy, but then you break it up with an annual, it just ruins the flow for me.
0: Hmm. Right. I'm sure that if I dig deep, I can find a continuity issue that, that <laughs> places that I'm, I'm sure that maybe there's like a reference to JJ's marriage or something like that. That goes, along. you know,
2: what? I, I hope there is i mean i just i want i want to that's my challenge to one of your listeners i want someone to find something in there that specifically puts the annual after 259 but before 260
0: yeah i mean i trust jeff york to uh have done his research on this and and have placed this appropriately
2: you're right actually generally speaking he's amazing so i'm I'm just very curious Uh, there must be something you're right but it just it just plays differently yeah and i don't have bothered me if it was one issue out of step if it didn't change the flow of the story and that's all it really comes down to is I, I would almost prefer the flow of the story over the numbering.
0: There's one scene on page 77 where Franklin is playing and his ball yes. goes over to the, the tank that's holding the symbiote and the symbiote seems really afraid of Franklin or they like they we- have some weird connection and I don't know that that's ever explained What what, what that exchange is all about
2: no it doesn't it's yeah but it somehow seizes control of his will yeah that's not something that's ever really kind of followed up on that the symbiote has an ability to kind of mentally control someone from not being in physical contact it is kind of strange
0: yeah um but this was the early stages at this point um this is kind of the the issue or maybe it was the other one, but the story behind this, and you can hear this in the interview as well. But again, I'm going to save that clip for for volume fourteen. But I'll sum it up here. Um, the The symbiote got so much hate mail mm. before before the first issue with the black costume even came out, because the kind of like how the the Hydra story with Captain America is happening right now. People hate it even before the issues out. Yes. Um but uh, and that happened with the black costume as well, to the point where Jim Shooter said, you know what, you guys, you have two issues and then get rid of it. And so Tom fought back and said, well, um, because Secret Wars is 12 issues long and he's not even going to get it six months from now I- in the Secret Wars comics. we got to keep the black costume around for at least six months. And then Jim said, OK, fine, but then get rid of it after that. And so that's why we see Spider-Man. Getting um, going into his regular costume in that other issue, but then because this was before email, so the the response time for fan mail was is is a few months delayed, and that so they're right in the middle of their the black costume story here, and Rel on their way, like they've already said that they're going to get rid of it, and they get all this mail saying that people love it, and Jim's like, no, you got to bring it back, and so at that point, Tom decides that this is going to be an alien and it's going to have this this uh, sort of symbiotic relationship. They, they, that wasn't defined before now. So this is the early stages of him just kind of throwing things against the wall to see what sticks. And um, I guess that didn't stick, the whole nope. Franklin connection.
2: Which I'm okay with.
0: Yep, yeah, And there's um, I love that this battle is also really great. There's a lot of humor in here. There's a really funny bathroom scene. Um, <laughs> but it's just uh, that kind of stuff shows that um, Ron, even in this, this early stage in his career, Ron is a is a great storyteller, excellent pacing, and he, he uh, handles humor as well as action really well.
2: Absolutely. I mean, you don't expect to read an amazing Spider-Man comic and see the hobgoblin on the toilet, but... No. And you got...
0: <laughs> oh, and I don't know about you, but whenever I'm reading a hobgoblin's dialogue, I always hear Mark Hamill's voice.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. He's the voice... Boy... Even though technically speaking, he's Jason Philip McIndale, but I'll let it go.
0: Okay, sorry, yep. that was a
2: real that, that was a that was a very super nerdy uh, stickler comment. <laughs>
0: um, yeah, well, you know, Hobgoblin once he's in the mask, you can just say he's like using a voice encoder or something like that. He always just sounds like Mark Hamill. Doesn't matter which <laughs> one it is.
2: <laughs> that works for me. Yep. So two sixty one. Um, first of all, great, great. Uh, you know, different kind of styles of the cover. To the cover it looks fantastic um basically this is an interesting issue because uh it's a bit of a what's the word like we have the hobgoblin he's got mj and liz he's trying to extort uh, harry osborne harry's looking for this secret journal but he you know isn't sure if he can find the right thing to be able to you know get liz and mj back um he desperately wishes he had someone who could help him obviously you know spider-man's also looking for uh the government so he can rescue them as well. Uh, they'll kind of converge on a warehouse where uh, the Rose has given the government an office, which is kind of an awkward exchange. And it ends up in you know a, a big, highly-pitched battle. Uh, Liz is potentially going into labor, although we find out later it's not labor, it's false labor. And uh, we get to see a great sequence where Harry actually tries to stand up to the Hobgoblin. Uh, you know, he- is armed with pumpkin bombs, um, and you know, has like the satchel. Uh, it's a-, a great sequence, and it's something that uh, later on, Michelinie and uh, McFarlane would kind of replicate during Inferno against a different Hobgoblin. Um, and it's, you know, Spider-Man, Hobgoblin battling, and Spider-Man is faced with a classic Spider-Man choice, either save Harry, Liz, and MJ, or defeat the Hobgoblin, and he chooses to save his friends, and uh, that's about it. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's uh th- I I really like this one. This th- it, it was a great way to wrap up this trilogy and it's uh um there are a lot of there's a lot of story here. There are a lot of panels in this issue because a lot of stuff happens and so um friends needs to cram it in. Um I especially like the sequence on page 102 where uh Harry is confronting I don't know what some thug I don't even know if he has a name or so, but uh um and Harry's got his gun just the way the <laughs> panels are laid out um especially the last two panels of the first of the middle tier where mm-hmm. you see half of harry's face and the gun and stuff it's just a uh, it's well thought out the it, it shows the the small panels show kind of the back and forth pacing um sort of quick exchange yeah and then then a, a great use of uh, behind the head koang from mary mm-hmm. jane's uh, shovel yep i like that there's a bunch of good sequences in here
2: Oh yeah, and and there's there's really no wasted space. Plus, we also, in the midst of all this, because there's so much going on, we also get yet another um, subplot with the alien costume finally escaping, um, which will obviously end up making a huge difference later on.
0: We also get a little bit more from Harry in this one because Harry decides that he's going to give just give the not give the journals to Hobgoblin in order to save his wife mm-hmm. and mary jane so that shows a lot of bravery from him too
2: exactly again we're seeing a different version of harry he's not quite the weak uh you know harry we were used to back when he was in therapy um and we had bart hamilton as the hobgoblin i uh, sorry green goblin we're seeing a different version of the character you know he's still he's still nervous he's still racked with guilt he's still dealing with the the legacy of the of the green goblin but we're seeing a little bit more resolve and again there's no better example for that for me than him with you know holding um a pumpkin bomb and threatening the up and that's pretty badass
0: yeah it really is there's also one uh sequence in here again about the symbiote escaping a little machine comes and flies into the baxter building and punches a hole in the tank and allows him to go out um again i don't know is is it revealed who was behind that that ship that set the symbiote free
2: I'm trying to think Fantastic Four 274. Um, I have no idea. I actually can't remember at all. It's one of those odd... You know, it's the nice thing about the Marvel Universe and also the terrible thing is that so many weird things happen, and this is one of those instances of great continuity, but if you don't read those books, it's confusing.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess I'll have to track down Fantastic Four 274. I have it. I just. I, I, it's been years since I've read it, and I never read it in context of Amazing Spider-Man, so...
2: Yeah, because that's during John Byrne's run. So, I mean, I know I have that in Omnibus somewhere, but I, I couldn't tell you in that issue specifically.
4: Yeah.
0: Okay. Do you have anything else for this issue here?
2: Uh, no, it's just it's it's really strong. And I, I really like that cover because it's a little bit different. You know, it's not your typical comic book cover. Um, it really is eye-catching. And... Yeah. Uh, different
0: weight to it. I love Charles Vest I think he's a great artist and he does a bunch of covers in this volume so um, th- it's really neat to see all of them come out. Um, mm-hmm. One of my favorite of his, he does a lot of fantasy and that kind of thing. He did a, a Thor graphic novel back in the 80s I think as well and um, so seeing him do the the straight up superhero stuff is a little different because it's not his usual fare. He also did the um, the the Rose storyline um in for bone the bone comics, Jeff Smith's Bone, if you're oh, yeah. if you're up with that. Yeah, that and that was really good. What a different style for for that as well. Pretty neat. Okay, moving on to number two sixty two. This is the photo cover that we talked about earlier, and now that you look at it you can see that the, the photographer um Elliot R. Brown is holding that stapler. And you can <laughs> see the cord going all the way down to the ground. Yeah. Leads to the flash that uh is on the other side of peter so that we can actually see his face but uh yeah this this issue is called trade secret and this is a fill-in issue um these fill-ins started because tom defalco and ron friends were only supposed to be temporary on this book while they while danny fingera found an actual regular person for the book so he uh so we have a few of these fill-in issues just because technically tom defalco himself was a fill-in issue a fill-in writer so That's why. Yeah. Yeah. This is just a period of fill-ins, but in this one we have this guy, uh, this sleazy photographer. Uh, The first scene we see, he's um, bumped into a woman and stole her wallet without her knowing. His name is Dirty Jake Jones, and he (laughs) accidentally sees, comes across Peter Parker, changing out of his Spider-Man gear in a closet, and takes a picture, and uh, is going to make millions on this picture because he's got the scoop of the century. So the whole issue is basically Spider-Man tracking down this guy um, and the guy evading him over and over again. Uh, Too much. Some sometimes it's comedic and sometimes it's not so. Um, but it's uh, it's it, it's a fun issue. It's a throwaway issue for sure, but it's uh, it's not bad. It's a Bob Layton issue. Uh, yeah, he wrote it and drew it.
2: You're uh, you're far more charitable than I am. I just think this this is not very good. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just, you know what? Spider-Man just doesn't even feel like himself. Uh, the fact that he even gets caught changing into Spider-Man, like, it just kind of ignores, first of all, that he's been Spider-Man for years and has never gotten caught before, and his spider sense is there for a reason. And yeah. it just felt like the, the the central conceit of the story doesn't feel like they found a uh, an adequate way to really explain why he was this dumb to get caught by someone so stupid um, in such a, a weird half-assed manner. And then we get an entire issue, like, it felt like someone had just kind of a, like, Layden had an idea and then couldn't really figure out how to make it work but just said, well, they need this by tomorrow anyway, and just put it together. Yeah. And <laughs> and I, I like Layden don't get me wrong, and I like his art, typically. And the art actually wasn't so bad here, although you can tell that it feels a little rushed, and some of the details just are lacking. Yeah. Um, but, but the story, again, just is kind of laughable, and it, the characters don't feel like themselves, and it's very forgettable. And it doesn't help that not only is it forgettable, but you're right in the middle of, you know, some great stuff by, you know, a great creative team. So it's more noticeable as a result. Whereas if there's yep. been a series of, of, if we'd had the kind of a series of uh, of these fill ins all at once, and this was not the first one, it wouldn't maybe have been so bad. I'm a little harsher than you are. Yeah,
0: for sure. Well, and that's good. That's a diff- differing opinions is always welcome. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um no I agree I agree that uh, this is a very different Spidey but I did appreciate the the way like his detective work I liked um, him trying to track down Dirty Jake and figure out where he was um, and I also enjoyed the you know the finale where he decides that he needs to be scary in order to catch this guy um, to mm-hmm. put on that act I thought they they did that to a pretty good effect and he even makes a, a one reference to Lamont Cranston who is yep. the the voice of the shadow the old radio show so they're going for that effect and i think they they did it fairly well but yeah i mean otherwise it's a fairly forgettable throwaway issue
2: oh what although i will say part of me does wonder does he ever find them <laughs> how hard could it be find to find it and i kind of want to like see someone actually play with that as much as i'm not a huge fan of the of that idea and uh wasn't a big fan of the issue i'm kind of curious to see what it would actually look like yeah that's all and and in the hands of a, a good writer it could actually be an interesting story for sure i this just wasn't it
0: well next time you're talking to dan slot make sure you bring that up
2: <laughs> if anyone was going to do that like i remember a few years ago i think it was before superior happened but um he had Shashan show up, who was Flash Thompson's girlfriend. Right. And I was like, oh, my God, someone knew Shashan. Like, I think I even tweeted him. And he's like, yeah, I'm glad you like that. I'm like, I, I love continuity. I love that they actually use this character because she's just out there in the world.
0: Right. Totally.
2: <laughs> All right. 263. Uh, the Spectacular Spider Kid. Uh, we got Tom Defoco and Ron Friends back together. I think this is a lot of fun. Um, it, it follows up on a character who had shown up in Spectacular, uh, who was a big fa- a fanboy of Dr. Octopus, and had tried to kind of become a villain. Uh, was then kind of talked out of it by Spider-Man, and, and it, they ended up having a bit of a fight, but uh, he was so motivated that he wants to be a superhero now, so we get introduced to his supporting cast, which I thought was kind of fun, That you know, the the girl that he kind of knows at school and his version of Flash Thompson I thought was uh, really kind of nice. And uh, I don't know. There's just something about this issue I found it incredibly charming. Um, that being said, it's kind of sad because I also know what eventually happens to the guy. He was awesome in Thunderbolts, but had a lot of bad things happen to him later on.
0: Oh, really? Um, I, yeah, I'm not aware of that. Wow.
2: Yeah. he. I mean, when he grows up, he's... He actually comes kind of pretty badass, but he had also had kind of a sad story because he was so motivated to kind of be a hero. He ended up being really fit. He wasn't a chubby kid anymore. Uh, he was an adult. Uh, he was actually pretty well trained. Um, the, he actually has a lot that goes on later, but I I really dug this. I thought it was kind of heartwarming that it's just this, this, this kid who just is trying to be someone and maybe doesn't know who he wants to be. And he's latching onto these other figures that he sees. One was obviously a villain and then another is a hero and he's a little misguided, but he's not a bad guy. And I like how, you know, spider Man's trying to dissuade him, but also kind of feels for him at the same time. And it just, it felt very much like he played on a very human part of, uh, Peter and it just, it just it was a really nice issue.
0: Yeah. So there's two, Two parts, like Peter, you say that Spider-Man helped him out, and one of them is just kind of, um, convincing him to, to not follow through with his superhero stuff um, because it's going to get him in trouble. Which I he kind of doesn't actually convince him to do that. But the other part is just he shows up at school mm-hmm. and helps him uh, to show that he act- like he actually knows Spider-Man and everything that he's he's being bullied about is um is actually true. So it's uh, he helps them out a great deal, just by being himself and showing up. So I thought that was kind of a a neat touch there, because Spider-Man isn't just a a punch the bad guys kind of hero; he stands Mm -hmm. up for the little guy like that. I think one of the things that makes this issue so endearing is that we, we collectively, we are all Ollie, and and um, we, you know, our childhood dreams of being a superhero ourselves are realized in this character here um and you know maybe we don't get bullied the same way that he does or maybe we do but we relate to his life at school and um we relate to his troubles with with girls and we and we relate to his desire to to be larger than life
2: and then another thing obviously that happens in this issue that is important is that is also the the birth of Normie Osborne
0: Yep. yeah i thought that this was handled uh really nicely is a is a nice sweet tender moment and uh, a great way to to kind of close out the issue. Absolutely, um, and it's the return of the black costume, although yes. it's uh, just a regular fabric black costume.
2: Yes, he likes to tell us that uh, Black Hat made it.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah, and this was kind of the first time where I felt like um, you really felt the that there were other the, other Spider-Man titles going on because they referenced Spider-Man ninety-nine, mm. and uh, there's a a lot that happened there. Um, in fact, there's a plot point in I believe it's in that issue that comes into play later on in this book that we don't get to, that they don't really explain, uh, and I'll we'll deal with that when we get to that.
2: I was surprised that they didn't include I forget exactly which issue of Spectacular it was, but there's the last issue of a Spectacular book I believe it's Spectacular where it has him about to go get his costume and and is then directly carried out in this issue. So I was actually surprised they didn't somehow find a way to put that panel in here because it's it's part of the story. Like Otherwise, it just seems very odd that he just kind of goes into his closet and the costume is waiting for him.
0: Right. So I know the Epic Collections are not in the habit of, of just reprinting one page or two from an issue. I know. Um, if anything, they would put a little text box.
2: So why um, didn't they do that? Just You know what I mean? Like, it just... Yep. Well, I feel I, like
0: though it it actually is probably fine. We the last time we see the symbiote, it's on its own crawling down a mountain, about to look for Peter Parker, and then we turn to this page and it's found Peter Parker. So it it doesn't um, like I think it still flows.
2: I guess so. I guess it just bugged me because I do know what happens.
0: <laughs> right, for sure. And I wonder if um if that uh, unlikely web of Spider-Man epic collection ever comes out, maybe they'd start it with that spectacular issue. Maybe. But, yeah, you're talking about the events in Peter Parker number 100. Spectacular Spider-Man 100. So this issue, Web of Spider-Man number one, another great cover by Charles Vess. Really great. I I love this one with uh, just the black. um, A lot, like, you don't even see a lot of details because it just goes into shadow. Great angle. Um, And I like the the logo, the Web of Spider-Man
2: logo as well. Mm -hmm. Do you think we actually needed to have this in this volume, though, honestly?
0: See, this is the question, and I know this comes up in the Marvel Masterworks forum every once in a while as well. I think we do because in volume fourteen, that deals with all of the the alien symbiote costume, and so, and then volume seventeen or eighteen, I can't remember which volume it is. We get Venom, so we need this issue to explain why, like why Spider, like why Peter Parker no longer has the symbiote costume, and where it's gone, and what's happened to it. Mm-hmm. It also, it also, it, um, like the famous scene with the with the church bells is in here, and I think that's important to know as well. Um, yeah, yeah. I think I actually think it is when you have all of the epic collections all together. Um, this will be an important issue to have for the whole story, for the sake of the story.
2: Okay. Well, the reason why I ask that is because I mean you're you're kind of saying that like other plot elements that happen later in the volume. Uh, Like collections from now Won't necessarily make sense If you're missing this But at the same time You have stuff like You know His relationship With the black cat Which is not in any way Kind of touched on In these issues But it's happening At the same time There's a breakup That happens It's referenced You never see it So uh, how do you really Mark that line Because that relationship With the black cat Is hugely important To the character During this period it's not reflected in the main book, but it's it's a huge thing that people remember and liked. And we're gonna see we see her both before that relationship, during part of it, and then also later after it. But we're just kind of missing the entire period while he's in it. So it's it's kind of a it, it, it's a very slippery slope.
0: Yeah, where do you draw the line exactly? That, that's a good that's a good point. And maybe maybe the only reason is that they had an extra thirty pages to spare in this one and they chose to choose this one instead and they didn't have enough room for both of them like it could be as simple as that (laughs) yeah I have no idea but yeah as far as this issue is concerned um, we have the uh, these three villains or this group of villains get uh, the technology from the vulture to make their own vulture suits and they call themselves the vultureons (laughs) <laughs> um, Honcho, Pigeon, and Sugarface are a few of them, and there's other ones that I don't remember their names. Um, but this one—that's be- that's kind of the main story, but at the same time, it's not really at all important either, um, because the main point of this story is that the symbiote comes back. It uh, it wraps itself around Peter again without him knowing, and uh, and is in is determined to stay a part of Peter's life. Um, and this is a, a thing that we don't usually get to see with the symbiote costume: is that it actually can, can uh, it has a mind of its own, so it tries to move Peter in the direction it wants to go rather than in the direction he wants to go. So that that takes up a lot of this issue here. And um, in the end, like I said, the famous scene with the church bells, the scene that's uh, repeated so prominently in the Venom saga in the Spider-Man cartoon from the '90s, um, is yeah. in this issue here and the the sonics the sonic vibrations from the bells is too much for the symbiote to uh to to stand and so it separates itself from peter in order to escape but it doesn't escape in time and it uh because it decides to save peter uh, Mm -hmm. and it turns to dust and that's it no more symbiote
2: yep that's it that's it no more never you're (laughs) never
0: going to see it ever again
2: (laughs) well it's it's interesting you mentioned the church bells. It's also a moment that's paid off in uh, Amazing Spider-Man 300, uh, right? Yeah, they, they go back to there, and it's like because that's obviously kind of a, a big thing for Brock because that's where he became Venom, right? Um, of course. And so you, I mean, you're right. I mean, I understand why it's there. At the same point, I like to argue about why it's there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, it's a good discussion to have for sure. If you look at page 168, there's a little scene here with. Um, Mary Jane bumping into to Aunt May who's shopping for a new hat. <laughs> this is another... This ties into the other thing that I was talking about, about a future storyline that's coming up. So pay attention there.
2: That's a good point. It's interesting that you would... I mean, in this day and age, we're almost used to it. But back when this issue would have come out, it's interesting that, that they have it... Kind of not figuring out its identity at all as a, as a series. You have Web of Spider Man issue number one. Okay, what am I going to get from this book going forward? Oh, I'm going to get them the wrap up something that was going on in other books. Uh, right. Well, now these days we're used to that. We've had you know when the other happened in uh, the late 2000s. Uh, it, it was the first what, few issues of Friendly Neighborhood and Spider-Man were part of this storyline. Like, we're used to the first few issues of something, launching something else. Like, we had uh, the first few issues of Spider-Woman by Dennis Hopeless being part of Spider-Verse. Had nothing to do with what that book was going to become, which was amazing, uh, but you launched it in the middle of a crossover, in the middle of another story. At this time, in the 80s, this is a little bit more of a strange thing. Nowadays, we're kind of used to it. We're desensitized, but at the time, very strange move.
0: Well, and this is, like, they just added a third spider-man title which was a big deal like today we don't bat an eye when there's another spider-man title added they could have 15 and, and no one would really care um but uh yeah it was the juggling act of now having three issues and and keeping them connected um because uh you know especially like tom DeFalco and jim shooter they loved continuity and having each book tie into each other so um louis simonson is the one who wrote this issue and I think was she on Spectacular Spider-Man before Web of Spider-Man came about?
2: I, I don't think so. I could I could have sworn it was Mantlo, but I could be wrong.
0: Okay, um, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not sure. But yeah, she. Uh, this thing with the hat is kind of her her storyline that she tells a little bit later. But um, this uh, other than the Spider-Man issue, the villains are like who cares, and um, the artwork is pretty good. But
2: um, yeah. The art's not bad. Absolutely. the The problem with Web is that it really floundered for years to find its own identity until I would say until Jerry Conway came on board.
0: Right. Yeah, I would say that too. And only because they, because um, he was doing two books, he was doing Spectacular at the same time, so he yep. could get the unified, the unified uh, consistency, a lot easier
2: that way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yep. All right, Amazing Spider Man two sixty four, another fill in, and it's terrible.
0: <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> this is so bad. First of all, if you look at the cover, you would almost think that it's Flash Thompson.
0: You would, yes.
2: But it's not, and that would be better than whatever this is. Um, this is. What you mean? Is... You
0: didn't like Red Nine?
2: No, this is so bad, like like painfully bad. Like like like, did someone have a bet on whether or not they could get this published? like this is atrocious. I don't know who Craig Anderson is. I don't know who Patty is the artist, but it's it's not good.
0: Well, and you know that this isn't this is definitely a rush job because at the end of the spectacular spider kid issue um which is the one the issue before this, it says next issue silver sable, but then you had yeah. this and there's no <laughs> Sa- silver sable in here. So you know that this something was late and this had to be rushed in in
2: I'm, i think yep. what would have been better is if we'd had this issue um so it was 264 and if every page was just a letter saying next issue silver sable and that would have been <laughs> yeah uh, i want you know just 22 pages of nine panels a page each saying silver sable's coming soon we promise right that would be better than what i just read wow this is it's just so bad it's such a waste of time like yeah it's like this guy has this super suit. I don't even know I can't even remember now if we really get a good explanation for how and it's just it's just weird haphazard like spider man fights this guy and he can't seem to really get his handle on it and then they end up trashing this this building that uh this old guy is living in, and he has to like clean it up, and then he's gonna have to help them so that they don't evict this guy and I'm like, what is happening
0: right. Yeah, and the the art is very amateur. The um, the Patty at the beginning—I don't know why her last name isn't there. It looks like there's even a space for it to be there, but it's Patty Cockrum.
2: Yeah. Okay. Um, I but, don't know. Who that is. is that any relation to Dave Cockrum?
0: I'm not sure. I should look that up, but I yeah I don't know. Um, but it is. It's quite. It's quite amateur. There's a lot of just like weird perspective, and the 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 panel that stands out to me is um, the very bottom of page one eighty nine, the last panel where um I like, I guess he's like the landlord. Oh, yeah. Being chased by the guy in the wheelchair and like one of his hands is super big and the his <laughs> neck is like going the wrong way and uh it's just a very, very awkward panel.
2: Oh, the entire issue is. Don't the, worry. Uh,
0: yeah, I'm... exactly. Um I like... will say though that I do like the premise of of this guy who through a mix up, a clerical mix up, he is technically dead. He um. So and because he's dead, it means that he d- no longer lives in that apartment. So his landlord is trying to get him out of there because he's kind of a pain in the butt. So Peter helps him out. Um,
2: here's, so here's my question about that: Is this not really meant to be a Daredevil story then?
0: <laughs> I don't know. Maybe.
2: Right? Because I mean, like that th- th- that sounds like a perfect quandary for Matt Murdock. Like that's in, like it's tailor-made for Daredevil. Like that's right. a great story or even an Iron Fist uh, Power Man story from that era like that would work better like why is it Spider-Man and it's just the weird it's played weirdly for laughs and I'm like I'm not laughing I'm just cringing
0: yeah yeah no it's 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 the low light for I think it's the low light of this whole book Um, uh
2: yeah I think you might be right
0: yeah (laughs) okay well then let's not waste any more time on it issue number 265 is called After the Fox This is the return of the Black Fox uh, that uh, DeFalco and friends introduced earlier in their run. And uh, it's also the first appearance of Silver Sable and Wild Pack. Um, Instead of explaining who Silver Sable is, I I think I'll just insert a clip from DeFalco and friends telling you themselves how they came up with this character.
3: The basic idea was, you know, I wanted to do a different kind of bounty hunter. And thought, what if it wasn't, you know, just one bounty hunter, but an organization that, you know, you know, is is basically a, a for hire, you know, bounty hunters or four hire mercenaries. Right. Um, and then, you know, I thought, now, now who would hire those sort of places? And, and, and you know, I thought, oh, governments, insurance companies, blah blah blah. And, and you know, but, but but where would it come from? And then work backwards that you know. Her, Her father had started an organization to hunt Nazi war criminals. But as the the years went by, there were less Nazi war criminals, and then she decided to take the uh, business in a different direction. And, you know, just built it up from there.
1: But uh, visually, Silver Sable was basically uh, Marilyn Monroe. Uh, You know, uh, we knew she was going to be European, I my initial sketches even even had her as a platinum blonde because we had black cat in the book at the time, so I didn't think having two characters with you know silver white hair would be a good idea. Thankfully, the editorial people disagreed with me and said, "Well, her name's Silver Sable. She's going to have silver hair." Right. So uh, she wore a lot of silver. Duh. And uh, you know, I mean, because my attitude is, I, I you know. At my assumption at the time was her name was not Silver Sable. Uh, I mean, of course, Greg Wright and Stephen Butler and a bunch of other guys, you know, did a lot of work with the character when she got her own book and came up with a back uh, filled in her backstory. They actually quite a bit stayed with Tom's original bible, but um, uh, the the one thing that that, that didn't survive. I, I spoke about this a little bit on my Facebook page was my if you look at those initial stories that we did my thought was that she was she was only like five foot five one you know i like the idea of this young athletic uh short person running this crew of big brawny mercenaries yeah yeah so i like the idea of her not being statuesque and lethal and all this I like the idea of her always being the shortest person in the room, but clearly in command. And if you look at those early issues, I, I think that does come through. She's even shorter than Pete and Pete's five ten, you know, that kind of thing.
0: So in this issue we have uh the we have Silver Sable after the Black Fox because the Black Fox has uh stolen this jewel that uh that they've that Silver Sable's been hired to get back. And um it's kind of just a game of cat and mouse between the Silver Sable, Spider-Man, and, and the Fox the whole time. Uh, they just kind of bounce around, and, and in the end, uh, they have the... Sp- Peter Parker has this moment, and this is I kind of feel like this is um, something that DeFalco tends to do a lot with Spider-Man, is um, Spider-Man finds the humanity in this villain. Um, he's got a wife and kids he's trying to get back to, and so, in a roundabout way, Spider-Man ends up l- helping him escape, um, but not with the jewels. So I—that it reminds me of the Ollie story, where he Ollie—he helps Ollie on a very personal level.
2: Hmm. Well, this feels like a very typical um, Black Fox story, where you know he thinks he gets away, but not quite the way he expected. Like it's kind of a wah wah. Yeah. Like <laughs> That's just how this character's kind of written. Like, he's always one step ahead, kind of, but then he's not when it, when it all is said and done. But I like that. It's very charming. Um, yeah. They write him in a very charming way. I, I like the introduction of Silver Sable. I like the Wild Pack. Uh, this is a winner. I mean, this is, a, this is a, a nice, solid issue. And the ending is really the, the big thing for me that kind of, because of everything that peter's been going on in the storyline he's like i got something more important to do and he's going to go and make up with aunt may which we have kind of seen you know nathan lebensky talking with her about you know you should really talk to to peter you should maybe forgive him um peter's been worrying about it um so it's nice to kind of see those characters finally reconnect
0: yeah it is um and we also see peter paying a visit to uh the hospital to visit uh, little norman and we find out that he- that the baby's name is now Norman Harry Osborne. And there is a cameo from Ron Friends right at the bottom of page 210. Ron. I was
2: wondering born... that was actually him.
0: Yep, it's actually him and his then girlfriend, Laurie. He drew them into the book. I believe this cameo of you visiting Harry and Liz in the hospital.
1: Uh, that is also true.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I yes, it. it was
1: uh, me and the, my girlfriend at the time. I threw us in just for fun because there was going to be somebody there to react to Spider-Man jumping out of the elevator. But Mr. DeFalco being, you know, uh, goof, uh, decided to put in dialogue that made it very obvious that it it was, uh, you know, he called me by name and called my girlfriend at the time by name. And we had flown in from Pittsburgh and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. So Plum (laughs) is adorable, isn't he?
2: You know, I'm trying. (laughs) I knew he was from Pittsburgh, so I was like, that can't be coincidence.
0: (laughs) No, not at all. Um, But, of course, he's a huge Spider-Man fan, so having him actually confront Spider-Man right there, that's probably a dream come true for him. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, So my first exposure to um, The Fox is actually through the Spider-Man cartoon from the 90s. Uh and he's a very different character in that one. He they call him the cat and yep. he is the father of Felicia Hardy, the black cat. Uh so that's um but I mean he's still he's still a jewel thief and has the same look and same sort of personality and such, so but they just can give him a different origin. So it's neat to see to see him here uh and learn a little bit more about him, but how he actually truly is
2: absolutely no it, it, it again it's charming it's fun um it's fast-paced you got a lot going on because again you have a new character being introduced to you who has her own kind of personal army and you get the idea now i don't know if they ever really paid this off but it struck me reading this issue because i remember i don't know if you remember the issue it's uh i think it's like 289 or it's maybe in the 280s whenever the sinister syndicate comes on board um, there's an issue before that, which is a Silver Sable issue. It's during the uh, the missing kind of loosely crossover that happened in the Spider Books, where Spider Man was thought to be missing in action or dead um, because of something that happened in Web of Spider Man, I think around issue 17 or so. And uh, so Spider Man's missing, and so it's just a uh, Silver Sable issue against uh, Jack lantern And in that issue, or maybe the issue right after, there's again a, a reference made to their enemy and someone kind of gunning for them and I don't know if that ever actually got paid off as to who that was because here in her first appearance we already get a sense that something something else is going on that someone's after her who is it and I I don't think that ever got resolved
0: not even in when Silver Sable got her own series
2: well but then DeFalco wasn't writing it so I I think probably not
0: but he could have um, like this is something DeFalco likes to set things up that pay off well in the future but he mm-hmm. wasn't on this book long enough to to pay off any of that. So it would have, if anyone wanted to address that, it would have been up to them. So yeah, I wonder if uh, I wonder if that is the case. I want to know
2: who uh, old that. Thing is.
0: we'll have to wait for the um, the Silver Sable complete collection or the <laughs> omnibus, the Silver Sable omnibus.
2: You know, one day you never know, right? Like eventually, that they're gonna need they need to con- continue packaging content. So you never know.
0: Well, you know, Sony is. Um, they say that they're going to have a uh, Silver Sable slash Black Cat movie. So All right, that would be a, a perfect time to reprint that material.
2: The only time to reprint that. material. <laughs> yeah. Right. All right, Amazing Spider-Man Two Sixty Six. This man, this frog. Uh, I, I love this. I, I actually really enjoy this. It's another fill-in. It's by Peter David, with artwork by Sal Basama. Um and uh it's it's about the, the the toad and was it Frogman and uh and also the Spider Kid and it's it's just a load of laughs. It's it's actually it's nice to see Spider Kid back and it's interesting that we're already kinda getting the character back considering where we had, you know, where the character kinda left off with uh Tom DeFaco and I guess Peter David was like, Well, I'm gonna use this character, why not? And uh it's just a lot of fun it's you know the toad gets you know is suicidal and he gets saved by spider-man and he wants spider-man to be his friend and it's it's very corny very kind of silly um peter david does a lot of this in this era kind of doing these kind of funnier issues and uh it's very simple but it's you know the toad wants to be spider-man's sidekick he comes up with a plan to, you know, cr- uh, create a giant threat to Spider-Man, and he's going to jump out and save the day. Uh, but then Frogman hears about it and wants to, you know, rescue Spider-Man. And then uh, not only do they are they involved, but Spider-Kid also hears and also wants to be involved to help Spidey. And then they all decide that they're going to create their own team. It's ridiculous, but very charming.
0: Yeah, and they all have the same physique, so it it's just a, yeah. it's sort of comical. It's a very funny issue, and it's one that's um not really even about Spider-Man.
2: No, not at all. Really. And it's interesting that when this came out, it was clear that, uh, if you look at the next issue, they knew that there was going to be another fill in right away. And they already knew what the title was like, and they're both Peter David written.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, I can't remember if they said that there is like one, of either Tom or Ron went on vacation. Cause again, they weren't these, they weren't the regular pencilers. Um, and then once they came back from the vacation, that's when they became the regular guys, but only for briefly, and then they went away again. But yeah. that, that might have been after the, the Peter David issues.
2: There's one other thing I wanted to mention because it just stands out as being kind of awkward. Is uh, the whole any? There's two sequences in this issue where you have um, I'm trying to remember what her name was. If it was Bambi, yeah, Bambi on the roof with Peter. Yeah. Really, come on, guys! Like, it's so poorly written. Um, very cheesy. I mean, Spider-Man doesn't really seem like this type of guy, and she's like, you, "You have a girlfriend? Not at the moment. Looking around? Not at the moment." And they're just like hanging out on the rooftop. <laughs> yeah,
0: come
2: on, like it's so cheesy.
0: Um, and yeah, and and uh, you can like do they revisit Bambi again? Um,
2: not outside of the trio, because usually you see them all together. It's the you know the three girls who are always kind of sunbathing on the roof, right. Uh, it's I think it's very actually strange to see only one of them. Um it this doesn't add anything. It doesn't it doesn't go anywhere. It just seems a little bit more awkward. Yeah. Cuz Spider-Man's not that you know, I guess I'm just not used to seeing Peter kind of written this way and it's very like oh, hey hey girl on this roof. Let's uh, <laughs> let's watch this sunset together. It's just it's it's just not quite what I would imagine from Peter. Maybe Flash Thompson, but not Peter.
0: Yeah. Well, it could be just Peter David playing around and trying to figure out because I wonder if um, I wonder if he was given these two issues to to see if he wanted to be the regular penciler or the regular writer for this book because I they feel were... like probably not yeah not with the, how comedic very, they are yeah
2: yeah I think th- he was still very kind of new to you know the, the comic writing at the point like he moved over from you know working in the sales department so I think he was still very new and of just trying things out, and they needed someone to take the spot. I think that's all it comes down to it's a fresh body.
0: Well, moving on to issue number two hundred and sixty-seven, when cometh the commuter? And I had no idea. I I went through this whole issue. It was like, what? There is no villain called the commuter here. But then I realized it was that's not what he was talking about when he uh, ah. titled that book. <laughs> so. Um, Did you know
2: about this issue? Like, what it was going to be? Like, because for me, like, this was always written up in Wizard as, like, kind of the funniest Spider Man comics. Um, I don't necessarily think it is actually what it is supposed to be. Um, but like for me like it was not a surprise once I finally got to read it uh, about what it was so I'm actually more intrigued to hear what you have to say about it because you didn't kind of have this this other kind of sense of what this issue was because of outside media
0: well yeah I had never heard of this issue before so I went through it and I I liked it it was um it was it had a great uh, a great sense of humor it was another funny one and so my my impr- impression though because it immediately came after another funny fill-in issue is like do we really need another funny fill-in fill-in issue so in that sense it got a little tiresome but there's a little i like um i've said this a couple times there are issues, it, through this book through this one volume peter parker does a lot of detective work mm. um, so and this is another issue of him being a detective and uh and doing a good job of it too but um, otherwise, the basic premise here is that uh, Peter is tracking down this guy he thinks is a—he's just a thief, right? It's not a—he's not anything more than that. No. He's not. In fact, he's not even really a thief. No, no, he is a thief. That's right.
2: He's definitely a thief. And his wife/slash girlfriend or whoever it is is very understanding of the fact that he's a thief. Like it, it's very common. She's like, "Oh, how did it go?"
0: <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's so weird because I guess maybe that he—that's how he. Um, that's his source of income but anyway he goes Peter Parker or Spider-Man um, tries to track this guy down I don't know why he's so insistent on tracking this one guy down but he does and he tracks him well he,
2: he was involved to begin with and you can't let a guy go by or else they might murder his Uncle Ben again
0: <laughs> I guess so <laughs> that's what it is um, court,
2: to be, and to and uh, to go back for a second if you look at the origin of the Hobgoblin it's because he didn't do enough work finding the one other guy you know a bunch of guys go into the, the sewers he gets three of the four the other one finds the hobgoblin's gear and then you have the hobgoblin right so it's very much present that you know he has to do what he can to stop these people because you don't know what's going to happen later
0: right and we find in the crusher uh the crusher hogan issue we have this same scenario play out of uh of the of the uncle ben situation but and we'll get to that one in a bit but yeah, he uh, he follows this guy all the way to suburbia and has a um, a comedy of errors that happens there. Um, it was okay. the um, The art was was not. Uh, I, Bob McCloud is great on uh, New Mutants, but I found this one to be a little lacking
2: yeah um, it it was a loose, little looser at times and um one thing I, I thought was interesting is that you mentioned like did we need another comedic issue right away but I did appreciate that compared to the issue before spiderman at least does take more of an active role that's true um, you know this is more of a spiderman story as opposed to spider man's in the middle of three lovable losers
0: and I have to give these guys credit because doing comedy, especially physical comedy, which a lot of this is um is hard to, to do hard to illustrate because you have to get the timing and the pacing even more right than when you're drawing action Absolutely. Um, and so and uh bob mccloud does a good job of this so that's good job for him and i like the parallel pages where it's like there's one column of peter what's happening with peter and then another column of what's happening with uh, that other guy i don't remember his name um, and yep. you just see the the passage of time happening at the same time. So, I like those things that happens a few times in the in the issue.
2: Mm-hmm. And it's, it's it's just nice as well That we get to have a nice uh, you know fish out of water story with Spider-Man because we're so used to seeing him in you know downtown New York where there's a lot of things to swing off of. And what do you do when you don't have that anymore? The answer is not very much. Yep. Uh, do you have anything else about that issue?
0: No. Why don't you go ahead and tackle the next two issues together?
2: Uh, do I have to? Um, <laughs> I, uh, oh, I, if I must... you if you
0: want to do them separately, I guess we could do those separately. Well,
2: I'm, I'm not a big fan of Web of Spider Man Six. Um, I it's okay. I mean, the whole Secret Wars Two tie-in. Uh, some issues are better than others, and this is definitely one of the ones that's not as good. I have the omnibus for Secret Wars Two, so I've had the misfortune or, or fortune, depending on how you look at it, of reading every tie-in, and I don't wow. think that the Web Web of Spider Man tie-in is that strong. Um, I also just don't think the art's very good like it it definitely feels like a, a step down especially so you've been reading these great issues even though some of them are fill-ins generally speaking at a higher level of quality than this issue um, I like Danny Fingeroff. this is not a very well scripted issue and I don't really know Mike Harris and then you have what four different finishers yeah. uh, Zach, Layton, uh, Simons and Mooney which have yeah. very different styles so You have a a total conflict. There's not a good sense of consistency. The storyline's very haphazard. There's a golden building, and everyone kind of wants it. Um, That's about it. Like, there's not much more to go from there. But the second part is a little bit more entertaining because you have DeFalco and friends, and they are such a great creative team that they can take a relatively haphazard uh, um, premise and make it work. Um, The art is a lot more entertaining or well done. Um, The storytelling is just stronger, uh, everything about this is better, and again, it doesn't seem as, as silly as this weird gold rush on this on this building, but instead we have you know the military taking control of it, uh, which seems normal, because that is what would happen is, in some weird scenario like this. It just feels so much more grounded and not as silly. It's not playing up humor. It just feels much more down to earth.
0: Well, I think one of the things that makes the web issue not stand out is it's basically Spider-Man having an internal conflict the entire time yeah um you know he's he's always strapped for cash so couldn't he take something from here um then he's going back and forth no i shouldn't it's stealing um technically it's owned by the government so i'd be stealing from the government and all this kind of stuff it's like he could take like a some just like some little scraps of of gold and they'd probably be worth a lot because they're just like the smallest nuggets are worth a fair deal
2: but do you even buy that as a real internal conflict for Peter Parker though considering his sense of responsibility and and guilt uh that over everything that happens ever um like it just doesn't even feel like a real uh, an earned thing that he would actually struggle with because he's such a stand-up guy that I feel like it just doesn't it doesn't ring true to me
0: yeah yeah it's true yeah it's uh it shouldn't have been that but then but the surprising thing is when you get to that amazing issue in the end he decides that he is going to take something because he sees that the government has uh, is in bed with the kingpin and mm-hmm. he's like well screw you guys if you're going to be corrupt then i'm going to be a little corrupt too and he takes a notepad that's made of gold that he found and in even... the garbage it was just he 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 rationalizes it because it's just trash somebody threw it away no one wanted it anyway
2: even then, it's still it's still a little hard to yep. swallow, but it's a little bit easier because it's it, it's relatively inconsequential in, in terms of the size of it yeah. compared to in the first issue.
0: Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's just a it's just like you said, it's the the Secret Wars two tie in. Secret Wars two itself wasn't as thrilling as Secret Wars one, uh, which also had <laughs> its issues, and so yeah, we're, we're getting like the tie ins to the sequel of a of a mediocre storyline. <laughs> so
2: well, I do like the last page because you do have fire Lord coming. And, uh, I like that. It's very like, you know, fire Lord is coming and the life of the amazing Spider-Man will never be the same again. And then the, the giant narration at the bo- at the bottom, you must not miss next issue. Trust us.
0: That's,
2: <laughs> yeah. It's classic kind of Stanley hyperbole, but I like it.
0: It's the type of hyperbole we never see in comics these days.
2: No, we really don't.
0: Nope.
2: I mean, in the marketing for the issues we do, but in the actual issues themselves, not as much.
0: No, not as much.
2: Who does the cover for Amazing Spider-Man two sixty nine? Because it's it's beautiful. Because the, the way like the the Spider-Man looks fantastic with that kind of in air action pose. I'm not sure if the anatomy actually works now that I look at it, but no, it kind of does. But uh, there's just something about the way that the figure is drawn that I think is really eye catching and uh, looks great.
0: Yeah, well, part of it is the. Um the The light bouncing off of Fire Lord's beam, reflecting off of his dark costume, so you get a good, a good, a dynamic uh, sense of coloring there too. Oh, it's a Ron Friends cover.
2: Really? Okay, that's one of the best Ron Friends covers I've ever seen. I'm
0: going to tackle these two issues together: issue two seventy or two sixty-nine, two seventy. The uh, conflict with with Firelord. Firelord is a a herald. He used to be a herald of Galactus. He comes to Earth. And I'm not sure why, but he stops by to say hi and get a piece of pie or something, or pizza. He stops to get a piece of pizza. And um, this is right at the time in when in the X-Books where the general public is starting to realize what mutants are, because they've been keeping it a secret for so long, but now the world is, it, they know, and they're afraid. and uh, And so a group of people... Uh, construction workers believe that Fire Lord is a mutant and go and attack him, and that sends him on the defense and sends him kind of raging all over the place. Spider Man gets involved, and these next two issues are basically one big fight, one, ap- one, one battle right after the other. He's in his black costume in this one, and when I first saw the cover to this collection, uh, with Fire Lord on the cover and Spider Man just kind of pummeling him in the face. I thought that it was because of the alien symbiote. Ah. But then when I started, when I read all of this stuff, I realized that the the symbiote actually didn't make Peter be mean. That's something, that's a kind of a retcon.
2: Yeah. And to be honest, I think that's something that the animated series kind of started.
0: Exactly. And that's kind of where I first heard the origin of the black costume. And so... Because I had only read kind of the Venom stuff up to that, I hadn't explored Spider-Man through the '80s, so yeah, this so that's what I thought. But then yeah, you get to this issue and like, no, this is just a regular costume. It is actually Peter being pretty brutal, um, which he needs to be because he's facing someone with the power cosmic. Um, I felt like these two issues, the story could have been told in one issue, um, and and it was just like. He, seriously Sp- spider-man's going to defeat a guy with the cosmic powers i found that a little hard to swallow mm.
2: yeah but fire lord's not quite on his game and spider-man's pissed off like i don't know i i i i allowed myself to go on the ride that DeTaco wanted me to go on and uh which is hard to do because i'm you know i'm a jaded comic book fan like many of us but uh there's just something about the way he writes the characters and the way the Friends draws them, that I escape into that world and I'm willing to kind of believe the the rules they want me to believe in. And it's not like we're not used to seeing Spider Man go up against people he has no right going up against. Uh, I mean, the Juggernaut issue is a classic example, although he doesn't necessarily beat the Juggernaut through fists, obviously, he defeats him through his smarts. Um, but, you know, I, I the, especially like the, the page where we have Spider Man. Uh, jumping all around and really like laying into uh, Fire Lord is a fantastically drawn issue, which again reminds me of that fight against Juggernaut. Um, I, I bought in as much as it's a little bit of a stretch. It was a stretch I was willing to go on.
0: Yeah, and it, it certainly wasn't the, the worst, that's for sure. But yeah,
2: high praise, Curtis. High praise. <laughs> um,
0: it, it's worth noting uh, two things. First, this is the first appearance of Catherine Cushing, who sticks around for a little while. Mhm. And this this story with Fire Lord actually continues in Avengers number 258.
2: And we, as we get a nice big full page shot here, which is kind of an interesting choice for a full page splash, uh, Spider-Man finds out that the or rem- remembers that the Fantastic Four's headquarters is completely trashed and gone.
0: That's right. Yeah, and that leads them to building the Four Freedoms Plaza.
2: Which I love. I love the The fours on top.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a brilliant design.
2: I mean, I grew up, you know, I grew up reading a lot of. I read a lot of comics in the '90s. That was their headquarters. That's always going to be the one I remember. Not the weird um, Pier that they had, and Heroes Return. That's a strange thing that no one ever remembers that they had. What was it Pier Four or something? But yeah, right. Don't know if you remember that. <laughs>
0: um, I do remember that. Yeah.
2: Yeah, this is this is a fun two-parter. Um, very enjoyable, and uh, yeah, it is what it is.
0: Yeah, and we can let's let's move let's keep on moving here.
2: All right, we got a double-sized annual, annual 19. I don't like this very much, but I love the cover. Uh, The cover's very iconic because, um, you know, this this is the thing that what if and what if comics are made of, you know? Uh, A shot of MJ as Spider-Man is very alluring. Uh, Definitely makes you go, whoa, whoa? Um, So in terms of, you know, captivating your interest if it was on the stands, absolutely, you're in. Uh, as opposed to actually keeping your interest once you read it. That's a little bit different. It's written by Louise Simonson with uh, breakdowns by Mary Wilshire and Pat Redding. What do you think of this? This uh, weird story using Alistair Smythe. Uh,
0: it, w- <laughs> it was really weird. Um, I actually, I kind of liked it. It I found that the art was, it left something, left a little bit to be desired here. But a oh, no,
2: um, I mean, look at Alistair. He, he looks like a crazed out hobo. Like, I I don't know what they're doing with him here. He looks insane and not in the... Oh, he looks like a crazy guy. Like, he literally looks nuts.
0: <laughs> this was a first appearance.
2: Is this his first appearance?
0: This is his first appearance. So this isn't... Oh, uh, this isn't... uh What are they... Like, they're totally changing the character. No, this is the actual, real, original okay. interpretation of Alistair Smythe.
2: I don't know if I was... If I realized that this was actually the first appearance. Yeah. Considering that this was it, I'm surprised they ever brought him back. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's a legacy character with the Spider Slayer. Spider Slayers are an iconic villain. So that's why he keeps coming back. But it's not because of how great the character was written here.
0: No, not at all. Um, I thought the story, the premise was pretty funny. Um, He mistakenly mistakes um, MJ as Spider-Man, I thought was pretty funny. Um, But this is the the plot that I was talking about earlier that happens because the Kingpin, as, as a way of saying thank you, and I don't, I don't know which issue this is for for real, but the the kingpin gives Spider-Man a hat, and, um, and Spider-Man passes it along to Aunt May in an issue yeah. of Spectacular Spider-Man. I think.
2: I think it's Web of, I think it actually is Web of Spider-Man.
0: Is it okay? That would make sense because Louise Simonson wrote this annual, and she was writing Web of Spider-Man. Yeah. So it, and then we saw that other issue, Web Number One, where May Parker is looking at this very hat at in the store. Um, so eventually, Kingpin gifts it to Spider-Man. Who, and I don't know why I I haven't read that issue, so I can't say. But, but um, it yeah. There's so there's that one plot line that they mention here in this book that happened in a different book that they don't even leave a footnote for. So mm. we don't even we don't even know what where that's taking place.
2: Ugh. Why you know. What? It's issues like these that may give annuals a bad name. Yeah, like the one we, the other one we read, which was the marriage of uh, J. Jonah Jameson and his, and his second wife. That that was a good annual. It added something. It meant something. The characters were on point. It was written by the regular artist, uh, sorry, writer. It, it it felt like it it made, it made a difference, and it actually was something that you might see referenced later uh, because it changes an element of continuity in the status quo. What really changes here, except for we introduced a new character, but is any, is anything else here really memorable?
0: Yeah, not really.
2: Great cover. That's about it.
0: Yeah, the cover is really good. Uh, but yeah, no, it's a this kind of issue is why I don't usually like annuals because they don't get the top people to, to do them. I mean, Louise Simonson was one of the top people at this time, but um,
2: well, yeah. she's great. That's the thing, too. She's a fantastic writer. I love Louis Simonson. I just don't like her work here.
0: I wonder if in the hands of a different artist, this would have been a great a great annual i wonder if it's the pacing the the artists just their their capabilities i wonder if that's just the reason why this one kind of is throwaway mm-hmm. okay well let's uh let's move right along to issue 271 whatever happened to crusher hogan and this is a i love it when they do this taking a, a just a throwaway character from an earlier issue and bringing him back and fleshing out their character and so crusher hogan is of course the guy that peter parker fights when he first becomes spider-man and um so yeah whatever happened to him after that encounter um apparently he's he's kind of washed up he's a he's a janitor in a gym and he he is now telling people that he's the guy who trained spider-man um but then he gets mixed up in this little thing where uh with uh, this villain called called manslaughter (laughs) which uh by his name, yeah. you know, he's not a friendly guy. And his his outfit and stuff is straight out of the early 80s or late 70s. Oh, for sure. And then through through it all, Spider-Man comes to save the day, and he's reunited with Crusher, and he does the same thing he does with Ollie back in that issue with Spider-Kid. He uh, lets the people around him think that they're buddies in order to help him out on a personal level. And it really means a lot to to Crusher Hogan.
2: Which we've seen Spider-Man do a lot in this volume.
0: Yep. The, the B-plot in this issue also is that... Um, Nathan, the, I guess, boyfriend of Aunt May, uh, gets a call from somebody, and he meets him, they meet him in a dark alley, this guy in a wheelchair, and then the, those guys beat him up and send him to the hospital, and the conundrum here is that Peter was supposed to be looking after, or looking up for Nathan, but then got called away to do this, and so, like we were talking about before, Peter has to make this decision, and whatever decision he makes, somebody's going to get hurt. It's the whole Uncle Ben thing.
2: Absolutely. Yep. It, the only thing that bugged me about this subplot is that we just had him and Aunt May talking to each other again, and now immediately she's like very disappointed in him again, and it just felt like that we have to break this so soon. Like they literally just started talking to each other again.
0: Right. Well, I wonder if that's why it makes it just uh, makes it impact that much more.
2: Maybe. I guess. Yeah. Well, you, you, you're right. Obviously, it does kind of underscore that and. But I just felt like it was such an extended period that they made a point of saying like there's there's this shift in the relationship and that I almost felt like they could have played with it a little bit more, showing that there's still potential cracks, but not exploding it like they do here. Like we go right from you know we're finally talking to each other again to how you know you couldn't even do this one thing you know that was important to me and I was in the hospital and it's your fault. Yeah, it's a pretty pretty big turn to take. I do like when they do kind of. Take a look at at characters that were kind of footnote characters, but expand them a little bit more. And it's a nice way of doing it. And it's kind of sad to see what happened to Hogan. It is. I can't remember if we see him after this. I'm sure we have. Oh, Um, yeah. I'm sure he comes back. I'm just curious what happens later on. But no, it's very interesting. I'm actually surprised in some way. I mean, obviously, it's a different sport, but I'm surprised that they haven't uh, tied him in in any way with uh, Batlin Jack Murdoch because everyone else does. I mean, uh, Absorbing Man has a, as a part of his history as well, so I'm just surprised that they've never been like, Crusher Hogan used to be a, a boxer, and he also fought Batlin' Jack. I mean, just, you can make the world that small if you want it to be, and that's one of the times where I'd be okay with it. So this is Make Way for Slide, Tom DeFalco and Sal Busema. Now, Busema's are, so I guess it's because it's Kyle Baker and the Inks, it's... Uh, or I guess finished art, that's the difference. Uh, very different than any other Decema art you're ever going to see.
0: Yeah, it has Kyle Baker's very distinct style. Back in the 80s, he has a completely different style now, but back yes. here, he it's very distinct. And I actually really like Kyle Baker. I'm a big fan of his uh, DC and Vertigo books, like um, Why I Hate Saturn and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, the Cowboy Wally show is fantastic. I love that book. Um, and uh, yeah, it was neat to see him Doing this finished art, and you really get a—if you don't know the role of an inker, like you can really tell it here, because if yep. you are very familiar with Sal Buscema's work, um, it looks completely different in the hands of a different inker.
2: Yeah, I, it's interesting when you open the issue. I mean, I, it really starts with a bang, right? Like, make way for slide, and it's very cool. And I feel like the rest of the issue fails to live up to the promise of that first issue, our uh, first page. <laughs> It's
0: true. It's because we have a villain. His 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 deal is that he wants to get to steal money so he can start up a company to be a rival company to a guy that fired him.
2: <laughs> Which I mean, to be fair, if you look at some of spider Man's rogues like the prowler, I'm mad that someone's using, you know, isn't being isn't respecting my ideas and is only making me be like a janitor. I'm going to going to go on my own. I mean, it's not that different.
0: Yeah. Well, it's different enough <laughs> it's it's just uh, it's simple that's all it is
2: yeah it's not super compelling it's it's almost a little contrived that this is your way of doing it like yeah but the issue has some great subplots and obviously we're building up to what's going to happen with the Puma
0: yeah those last two pages I'm pretty sure those last two pages are Ron Friends and Joe Rubenstein
2: absolutely like unmistakably yeah especially like just the way the Fireheart looks on the uh, on the second of those two pages when you have the Puma kind of the specter behind of the puma behind them, like that's clearly a Ron Friends face. Yeah. I'm really excited for volume 16 whenever we get it because um, I love those issues. Um, we get a lot more development with the Hobgoblin. We get the introduction of uh, kind of Flash Thompson being shoved into that whole melee. Um, it's really exciting stuff. You got the Sinister Syndicate for the first time. Uh, I cannot wait for volume 16, but uh, it's, it's going to be what next year at least.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, when it comes. Yeah, I'll, I'll be I'll be ready for Have it. Have you read those issues? I I've read some of those issues. I haven't read all of those issues, but um as a big Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends fan, I'm going to be uh, eagerly awaiting it. That's for sure. For sure.
2: But there's sure. there's not
0: enough for a full volume, right?
2: They continue till like what, the 280s or so. So I think there is. Okay. Cuz I mean this goes to 272, so 273 to like 283 or 4 by the, at the least is enough to cover the rest of their of uh, their run.
0: Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. It's only going to be about half of an epic. Oh,
2: uh, yeah. It, yeah, it's going to be kind of a weird one because I don't know where they're going to cut it off. Um, although, I think we have like a, the gang war storyline happens right after that or yep. during the, when they leave. So if you go to the end of the gang war, I think that's probably where it ended because otherwise you get into um, the Spider Slayer storyline that leads into Spider-Man proposing to MJ. Then you have the marriage and right after that you have Craven's Last Hunt, and I guess we already know what's in that volume, so we can probably figure out exactly what we're going to get.
0: Actually, yeah, you're probably right. Yeah.
2: So, for those listening, yes, we realized that we could have looked this up, but we didn't. It's okay. That's fine. (laughs) Yep.
0: (laughs) Wow, so that's the whole volume here. Do you have any closing thoughts?
2: I love the Marvel subscription ad from 1985. Uh, Even though it's weird to see the Hobgoblin where the Green Goblin should be, but... um, I love it. Like, I wish they would reprint more of this stuff. There's some fantastic house ads from this period that we never get. Um, Marvel had such a
0: good sense of humor back then.
2: Oh, for sure. And it's nice to have them. And, again, I love the Marvel Tales um, reprint covers as well that we got in this volume. Marvel Tales was a great program back in the day. Um, I know that I... Um, picked up some issues in Marvel Tales, which confused me a little. Actually, sorry, didn't confuse me because I was a kid and somehow didn't care that I was reading Maximum Carnage alongside the first appearance of the Sinister Syndicate. But I love that they used to do this because it was a, a good way of being able to use their back catalog back before collected editions were the norm uh, so that people who you know didn't get to experience this stuff when it first came out got the chance to. Yeah, for sure. I missed it as a project, but obviously, with the e- economics of comics, it would never succeed today. Like yeah, it, no. they just wouldn't sell enough comics. I mean, regular comics don't sell enough, let alone a reprint of you know ten-year-old, fifteen-year-old material. So,
0: unless it's uh, for a specific reason, because I know that Marvel's doing right now their True Believer editions, and they're reprinting a bunch of like the first X titles of various issues and that True. kind of thing.
2: And, and those are just like a sample, right? You get yeah. one issue, and that's it. which is kind of it's still kind of weird to me, but I get it because uh, I've never actually picked up one of them. I'm wondering at the end of those issues, does it say if you want to read the rest, pick up this trade or pick this up digitally? Or do you know what it even says at the end of one of these true believer issues?
0: I don't know. I have never seen any of them.
2: They make them. They print them. We see them in the diamond listing. I've never seen one on the shelves. I've never seen one in actual physical print. So. I've
0: I've seen them on the shelves, but I've never I haven't flipped through them. But okay, uh, so now
2: you have a job. Next time you're at the store, okay, pick it up. Check the last page. <laughs>
0: I, I I totally enjoyed this. I even though there are st- a little few a few stinkers. It's a great capsule of Spider-Man during this era. And as a big fan of the 90s Spider-Man cartoon, this era is a huge influence for that cartoon as we can see from the cat um uh, or sorry, the fox. Um <laughs> the uh <laughs> yeah, um the Alistair Smythe his first appearance here, the black costume, like everything here, a lot of these key moments. Are reflected in um, in that TV show.
2: Absolutely, that's very true. It's uh, it's a lot of a lot of the DNA of that show is in these '80s comics, which you don't necessarily think of directly, but yeah, it's there's a huge influence there. Yeah.
0: Well, that's uh, let's wrap this up. I think um, we haven't discussed what Epic Collection we're going to talk about next time. Uh, do you have any Do you have any thoughts on that? Do Do we want to do a Daredevil book next?
2: Uh Yeah, I think it's time to get some Daredevil going. I mean, everyone else, you've done Iron Fist, you've done all those other characters. I think it's time for Daredevil to get his, the devil to get his due.
0: So, yeah, let the devil get his due. So which one do you want to do? It's your pick. You choose.
2: I feel like we should go with the first one they published. I think that is the right thing to do. Okay. Um, Let's do let's do the Fall from Grace, then. Let's do it. <laughs> it's going to be something else, I'll tell you. Okay, <laughs> let's do it. It's, it's very over the top. It's Scott McDaniel. It's craziness. Uh, Chichester just throws everything at the wall. A lot of it falls off the wall. But uh, it's, I, I, I think it's probably still as incoherent as it can be at times. I think you'll enjoy it more than the future volume, uh, which is the, the last one, The Widow's Kiss.
0: Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Again, check us out on Facebook on Twitter. Uh, leave us some comments leave us uh you can send us email at epicmarvelpodcast at gmail.com and uh yeah just uh stay tuned and we'll see you again i think adam will be back with us probably maybe either end of august or early september so you can wait uh, eagerly await that episode then
2: and, absolutely yeah
0: we'll catch you next time see you later